Well, hello, I am Sean Jeffries, uh, a preacher for the Monte Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. I want to welcome you to another Bible class video. Uh, in our videos that we are doing during this a very unique and stressful time in our country, we're trying to keep, keep up with our Bible classes. And currently, as a congregation, we are studying the, through the book of Hebrews, we actually began the book of Hebrews last week. We studied Hebrews chapter 1. And in this video, we are going to study Hebrews chapter 2. I want to remind those who are watching that there are outlines available for each class. Uh, they are made available through our, through our website. And so please feel free to get a copy of that. Also, I want to remind you that we're doing about two videos a week, at least two videos a week, keeping with our Bible class schedule. And so we have a video on Sunday mornings uh, that come out during our normal Bible class hour. And we also have a video that comes out on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m., again, keeping in line with our normal Bible class hours. And so we're going to dive into Hebrews chapter 2 in this video. But before we do that, I just want to say a brief prayer and ask God to bless this study. Almighty God, thank you for another day of life and health and strength. Uh, we pray for our country during this time of uh, health crisis. We pray, Father, that you will bless the medical professions, professionals. We pray, Father, that you will bless uh, all of those in government, Father, who are making tough decisions. We pray that you will bless elders across this country and bless your people. And please bless our study through the book of Hebrews. Help us study it diligently and accurately and make the necessary application in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we, we dive into Hebrews 2, I just would like to spend a few moments just reviewing quickly Hebrews 1 so we can keep, in, keep with the context of what's going on. If you remember in our previous video, we made the point uh, that the theme, the great theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ. The mission that the author of this book appears to be on is a mission to convince these, these Hebrew Christians, people who were Hebrews or Jews by ethnicity, but they had been converted to Christianity, they had been converted by the gospel. The Hebrew writer seems to be on a mission to convince these Christians not to abandon their faith in Jesus and go back to the Old Testament law of Moses. It appears that these Christians during this time were being persecuted severely for their faith, and they were even being pressured uh, to go back to living under the old law. And the Hebrew writer is trying to urge these Christians, by talking about the superiority of Jesus, he's trying to urge them not to do that, not to abandon their, their faith in Christ, because what they have in Jesus is far more superior to anything they had while they were living under the old law. And so in chapter 1, the writer begins making this case by bringing up two very specific things. First, in the first three verses of chapter 1, he begins making his case by talking about how Jesus is a superior spokesman. He is superior to the Old Testament prophets. Unlike the Old Testament prophets, Jesus gives us complete and full revelation from heaven. 
And he is God in the flesh giving that information. He is the son of God. He is someone who's always been in the bosom of God. He's been with God the Father from eternity. And so when we hear from Jesus and his gospel, we are hearing from a more superior spokesman than that of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. The Hebrew writer begins the book by talking about how Jesus is a superior spokesman. He's a superior prophet. And then in the rest of chapter 1, if you remember, the Hebrew writer makes the point that Jesus is superior to the angels. The Jewish people held angels in high esteem. They feared angels. They had a lot of reverence for angels, but Jesus is more superior to angels. He's more superior to angels because he, unlike angels, he's the very son of God. Unlike angels, he's the creator of all things. Unlike angels, he is God. He is deity. He's worthy of worship. He has been exalted to the right hand of God. The Hebrew writer says that Jesus is superior to the prophets, and he's superior to angels. This is how he begins the book. And again, the point is, don't leave Jesus. Don't leave someone who is more superior to the Old Testament prophets and even to angels. And so that was essentially our study in chapter 1. But now let's go to chapter 2. And let's begin this study from chapter 2 by reading the first four verses. I'm in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse number 1, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. You may be reading from a New King James or an Old King James or an English Standard. That, that's fine, but I just want you to know that I am reading from the New American Standard Translation. Hebrews 2 and verse 1. The scripture says this, after talking about how Jesus is superior to angels and how angels are ministering spirits to the people of God today, he says, for this reason, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. For, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a, a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, if you don't mind, I would like to sort of go out of order a little bit in explaining these verses. And I'm going to show you there's a reason why I'm doing that. I usually don't do that, but I think it is necessary to do that for this particular unit of scriptures. I want to begin explaining these verses by first asking you to look carefully at verse number three. Do you see verse number three? In verse number three, the Hebrew writer describes the salvation of disciples, saints, Christians as a great salvation. He doesn't just say we have salvation, but he says we have a great salvation. Do you see that? I want to ask you something, and I want you just to think about this as you watch this video with your family. What makes our salvation so great? Why is our salvation described 
as a great, a great salvation. Well, there are at least four things that, that I think of when I hear the Bible use this language. I think there are at least, at least four reasons why our salvation is a great salvation. First, our salvation that, that we received when we were immersed in the waters of baptism, our salvation is great because it came at the price of a great sacrifice. A great sacrifice. I mean, think about the sacrifice that God made so that we could receive salvation. Think about how he gave his only begotten son for our salvation. Think about how the Son, Jesus, God, the Son, he actually left the glories of heaven and he came into this world that we live in. He came out of the realm of eternity into the realm of time and space and he put on flesh. He lived as a man and he was persecuted by his own creation and he suffered and he died the worst death imaginable. He died by execution on a cross. He had nails driven in his hands and in his feet. He had a spear driven in his side. He suffered to his last breath. He, he went through all of that just so we, sinful creatures, people like me, Sean Jeffries, just so we could be redeemed. God went through that. God put on flesh, lived as a man, and suffered and died on a cross. What a great sacrifice God made. I mean, this is a, a, an even higher sacrifice than the sacrifices made under the Old Testament law. This isn't some animal sacrifice. This isn't the sacrifice of a bull or, or a goat or a dove. This is not even an angel sacrifice in his life. This is not the sacrifice of someone who was merely a man. This was the sacrifice of God himself. God actually living as a man and dying on a cross for the sins of men. The Apostle Paul talks about this actually in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, if you keep your place at Hebrews 2, we'll come back there. But in, in Philippians chapter 2, and verse number 3, Philippians 2 and verse 3, Paul says this. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. We ought to regard one another as Christians as more important than ourselves. We need to look out for each other. We need to be unselfish towards one another. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus had this unselfish attitude. Now, look at how he demonstrated that at the highest level. Verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, he was God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself of his position in heaven. He, he emptied himself of his power even for a time. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of God, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. Here Paul is talking about the great sacrifice of Jesus. All Jesus gave up so that we could be redeemed. He emptied himself, emptied himself of his position, came into this world, lived as a man, and died a horrible death on a cross. Our salvation is great because it came at the price of a great sacrifice by God himself. Our sacrifice or our salvation is also great because it provided a great deliverance. A great deliverance. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The wages of our sins, what we deserve because we sinned, is death. Spiritual death, eternal separation from God. That's what we deserve because we've sinned against a holy God. And Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah told the people of Israel that their sins had made a barrier between them and God. Their sins had, had made it so that God would not even listen to their prayers. That's the price of sin, separation from God, eternal separation from God, and yet because of Jesus, we can be delivered from sin. We have been delivered from sin. That barrier has been taken down, so now we can be reconciled unto God, brought back into a relationship with him. We can be in fellowship with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Our salvation is great because it came at the price of a great sacrifice. It provided a great deliverance. And also because of Jesus, we can receive a great reward. Our reward is great. What is our reward? Well, Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 3. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for, for you. This right here is our reward. Our reward is a place in heaven. Our reward is an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. That's talking about being able to live forever with God the Father in his house. Because of what Jesus did, we, even though we sinned against God, we can be delivered from our sins and we can actually go to heaven to be with God for eternity. And then our salvation is also great because it was a demonstration of great love from God. John 3 verse 16, you know the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 15, verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love, have no one than this, that one is, is willing to lay down his life for his friends. Let me tell you something, my dear friends. Because of what God did for us through his son, Jesus, no matter how hard life may get for us, one thing we should never do is we should never, ever question the love of God. We should never ever question God's love for us because 2,000 years ago, he demonstrated that love at the highest level by giving us his perfect and sinless son to die on a cross 
so that he can deliver us from our sins and so that we can actually receive the great reward of being in fellowship with God for eternity. There may be a lot of people who love you in your life. I have a lot of people who love me in my life, but according to what the Bible says, there's no one who loves us like God loves us. Our salvation is great. And these Christians needed to understand this. These Hebrew Christians that the writer is writing to, they needed to understand that their salvation was great and it was great because it came at a great price and by great love. They needed to understand that if they went back to living under the Old Testament law of Moses, they were going to abandon this great salvation. They were going to abandon all of the blessings that are found in Jesus Christ. So I wanted to begin there because understanding that, that language, great salvation, is absolutely critical to really be able to appreciate the admonition that the Hebrew writer is making. Going back to verse number one, going back to verse number one, the Hebrew writer says that when it comes to this gospel message, to this message that Christians have obeyed that comes from Jesus, instead of drifting away from it, instead of leaving it, he says we need to pay much closer attention to it. We need to strive every single day to listen even more carefully to this revelation that has come from God. We don't need to drift away from the gospel. We need to pay close attention to the gospel. And then in verses 2 through 3, he makes a contrast, a comparison and a contrast between that which was given to the children of Israel under the old law and that which has been given to us under the new law. In verse 2, when he talks about the words spoken through angels and how if that proved to be unchangeable or unalterable and how if people or the Jews violated that, they received a penalty from God, there he's talking about, when he talks about the words spoken through angels, he's talking about that Old Testament law that was given through Moses. That law was, was, was given through angels, and if God took that law seriously, if the Jews received a penalty from God if they disobeyed it and did not listen to it and even tried to change it, how much more severe will the punishment we receive be if we neglect something even greater that has come through God's Son, Jesus Christ? That's the point that he makes when he asks the question, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I mean, if God took the old law seriously, what do we expect from God if we neglect the salvation, the great salvation that's been given through us through obedience to the gospel. And so the Hebrew writer is saying, don't abandon this because this is even more superior to the old law because it has come through Jesus. In fact, beginning in verse, the halfway point of verse 3 and going through verse 4, he talks about the gospel, this gospel message even more. He tells us that this is a sure message. This is a sure message. Why is it a sure message? Well, he explains. He says that it was first spoken through the Lord. It was spoken through the Lord, spoken in a few different ways or in a couple of different ways. First, spoken through Jesus when he was on the earth preaching, preaching the glorious gospel. Jesus spoke this from his very mouth. 
And then after he ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God, the message was delivered to the apostles and the prophets by the Holy Spirit. That's John 16. But when the apostles went out preaching the word of God, they were preaching that which had been revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. And not only do they preach the gospel to those in the first century, but they confirmed that the message they were preaching came from God. It came from the Holy Spirit by performing miracles. Notice again in verse number three, he says, after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And so God not only spoke through the apostles, God not only spoke through men like Matthew and Paul and Peter, but these men, as they preached the gospel, they also confirmed that their message came from God by performing miracles. They performed miracles. They did things like raise the dead. They did things like speak in foreign languages, that they had never formally learned before. They did things like prophesy, cast demons out of people. They did these things to confirm to their audiences that they were, in fact, speaking from God. And so this is a message that was spoken through the Lord from information by information from heaven, and it was confirmed to be true by the working of, of miracles. In fact, look in your Bibles at Mark, the 16th chapter. In Mark chapter 16, and I'm looking at verse number 15, Jesus said that this very thing was going to take place. Mark chapter 16 and verse number 15. When giving the Great Commission, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And so this is the Great Commission. Jesus told his apostles, go into all the world and preach. But look at verse 17. These signs, miraculous signs, will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So notice how Jesus says that the apostles, as they went out preaching the gospel, they were going to, they were going to perform miracles. They were going to do supernatural things by the hand of God. And here's why they were going to do that. Verse 19. So then when the Lord has spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word. Notice, confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Notice how the working of miracles by the apostles was designed to confirm the word. It was designed to confirm that the message, the verbal message that they were speaking to the world actually came from God. They didn't go out preaching just asking people to take their word for it. They didn't go out preaching this gospel message and saying, well, just take our word that we're messengers from God. No, they confirmed that they were messengers of God by doing supernatural things. That's what Jesus said was going to happen. And that goes right in line with what the Hebrew writer said, going back to Hebrews chapter 2. Remember, going back to Hebrews chapter 2, 
And in verse number three, it says, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed. Notice there's that word confirmed, confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so this is a sure message we have, this gospel message. It is sure because it came from the Holy Spirit. It came from heaven and it was confirmed to be a message from heaven through the working of miracles. And so the Hebrew writer says, the point he's making is don't drift away from that message. Don't, don't leave this message. Don't leave this gospel message that has been delivered by the Holy Spirit and confirmed to be so. And I just want to make the point that when you look at Hebrews 2 and verse 1, that language, don't drift away, that's important language to have highlighted in your Bible. As I've already said in the previous video, video this is language that the Hebrew writer is going to use quite often in his teaching. Throughout this book, he's going to make it very clear that Christians can drift away from God. Christians can leave the Lord. We can abandon the great salvation we've received in Jesus. And his point here in this book is don't do that. Don't abandon your faith in Jesus. Instead of abandoning Jesus, instead of abandoning his gospel, pay closer attention to it. Study it. Learn it. Grow in it. Do the best you can to hold it close to your heart. And so that's the first four verses there. Don't abandon your great salvation in Jesus. But now let's move on to verses 5 through 9. Verses 5 through 9. After talking about the sure message we have in Jesus, the sure message of the gospel, and how we don't need to drift away from that message, he says this in verse number 5. He returns back to the subject of angels. Because remember, in verse 2, he talked about how the old law was given through angels and how what we have is even more superior to that because it came through Jesus. Well, in verse 5, he says, For he, and the he there is a reference to Jesus, did not subject to angels, or God the Father, I'm sorry, this is a, a reference to God the Father. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember here, remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. There's a lot we could say about those verses right there, but remember the purpose of these classes and these videos is really just to give an overview of what's going on in the chapters to hopefully help you in your personal study. And so I, I just want to just make a few comments about this section to kind of just give an overview of what's going on in these verses. First, that's not, let's not miss the big point of what's being said here. The big point of what's being said is that, yes, Jesus is more superior to angels. 
We've made that point. The Hebrew writers made that point. But he goes on to say that even though Jesus is more superior to angels, when he came into the world to down the cross for our sins, he actually came into the world in a form that was lower than angels. And so even though he's more superior to angels, he came into the world in a form that was lower than angels. How did he come into the world in a form lower than angels? Well, the Hebrew writers making the point is he came into a, the world in a form lower than angels because he came into the world as a man. He came into the world like one of us. If you notice in the section there, the Hebrew writer is quoting from the eighth psalm. I love the eighth psalm. In the eighth psalm, God, it, it really gives some beautiful language to talk about how he has exalted mankind. He's given us dominion over all things. I mean, we're, we're so great in the eyes of God that we've only been made a little lower than the angels. God has put man in a high position. And yet, even though we're just a little bit lower than the angels, angels are superior to us. That's the implication of that. And yet, when Jesus came into the world, he was made like one of us, which means he was made lower than, than the angels. He, was, he came into the world as a man. He put on flesh. And why did he come into the world lower than the angels? Why did he come into the world in flesh? God with flesh. Why? Well, there are three reasons why. First, and the main reason why Jesus came into the world as a man, lower even than the angels, even though he's God, was so he could die. That's the main reason why. The Hebrew writer makes that point in verse number 9 when he says, so that he might taste death for everyone. Jesus was made a little, a little lower than angels so he could die. He had to put on flesh so he could die. Angels don't die. God, as he dwells in eternity, is incapable of dying. And so Jesus came into the world as God and a man so that he could taste death, so that he could die for all people. That's the main reason why. In fact, going back to Philippians chapter 2, remember in verse number 8, in verse 8 it says being found in appearance as a man. Jesus was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was made like one of us. He came into the world as a man, even though he's God, so he could die. But secondly... He also was made a little lower than angels so he could be a mediator. So that he could be a go-between, if I could use that language. A go-between between us and God. A go-between between mankind and God. Jesus put on flesh so that he could be a mediator. He also put on flesh so he could be a perfect high priest. So that he could be able to truly sympathize with our weaknesses so that he could truly be able to understand us in every way because he lived on this planet as both God and man. You see, it was necessary for Jesus to be made a little lower than angels. It was necessary for Jesus to put on flesh. He had to put on flesh so that he could suffer and so that he could die. In fact, the writer in the rest of this chapter is going to go on to talk about all of the blessings that have been made available to us because Jesus put on flesh and because he suffered. 
And so let's just continue with the chapter, okay? Verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things. And bringing many sons to glory through Jesus, we can be brought to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who hath the power of death, that is, the devil. It might free, throw, free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And so I, I really want to do my best to simplify, to, to simplify what the Hebrew writer is saying there. The Hebrew writer, in my, in my belief, in my understanding, is making the point that there is... There are blessings that are made available because Jesus was made a little lower than angels. Because Jesus put on flesh, because he came in the world as a man, God in the flesh, his sufferings have made available so many wonderful things. And so I want to give you four of those from this section. First, through the sufferings of Jesus, through his sufferings, he was made the perfect author of our salvation. That's what the Hebrew writer says in verse number 10. He was, made, he was made this way to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Through the sufferings of Jesus, Jesus was made the perfect author of our salvation. That's what the text says. What does that mean? You know, so often, unfortunately, as Bible students, when we see the word perfect in the scriptures, we automatically think that word perfect means sinless, sinless. There are times when the Bible says that Christians must become perfect, and we think that means that God wants us to, to reach a point when we are sinless. Let me tell you something, my friends. We'll never reach that point. We've already failed that test a long time ago. You see, when the Bible used the word perfect, it, it, rarely is it ever talking about sinless perfection. In fact, the vast majority of time, the word perfect, when it is used in the scriptures, is used to talk about completion. It means to be made complete or mature. Paul uses that word several times to talk about spiritual maturity. Jesus in Matthew 5, when he talks about perfect, he's talking about being perfected in our love, being made complete reaching a full level of maturity in our love for each other. Matthew 5, 48. Usually when that word perfect is used, it's used to talk about complete, completeness. And that's how it's being used here. Jesus didn't suffer so he could become sinless. He was sinless his whole life. He was sinless his entire 33 years on this planet. 
Jesus was sinless every day of his life. His sufferings didn't make him sinless, but his sufferings made him a complete savior, perfectly qualified to be the savior. Through his sufferings, he was made to be just, to be everything we need for our salvation. Through his sufferings, he was made to be a mediator. Through his sufferings, he was made to be a high priest. Through his sufferings, he, he was able to fully complete the plan that God had given him. As Jesus was on the cross, his last words were, it is finished. It is finished. I have done everything my father wanted me to do. I have fulfilled the mission as the Savior that my father gave me. Through his sufferings, Jesus was made the complete or the perfect author of our salvation. He was fully then qualified to be the Savior of the world through his sufferings. That's the point the Hebrew writer is making. The word perfect there is not used to talk about sinless. Jesus was always sinless. The word perfect is being used to talk about completeness. Jesus was made a complete Savior through his sufferings. He did everything God intended through his sufferings. So that's the first blessing that came through the suffering of Jesus. But a second blessing that came through that is through his suffering in verses 11 through 13, we are able to be his brethren. We're able to be his brethren. Verse, again, verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's us, we are sanctified, set apart through the blood of Jesus. We're all from one father. We all have the same father. We're able to have the same father that Jesus has. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus is not ashamed to call people like us his brethren. What an amazing concept. Another way we could say that is through Jesus, through his death, through his sufferings, we're able to be part of God's family. We're able to be in a situation where God, the Father, is our Father, and Jesus is our big brother. He's our elder brother. That's the point the Hebrew writer is making in verses 11 through 13. Through the sufferings of Jesus, we're able to be adopted into God's family. Paul makes this same point in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. We're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We're all part of the same family. So through Jesus' sufferings, he was made a perfect author of our salvation. And because of that, we're able to be in God's family. God is our father. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is our big brother. He's not ashamed to call us his brethren. So that's another blessing that comes to us. And then in verses 14 through 16, another blessing that comes to us because of the sufferings of Jesus is death and the devil were rendered powerless. They were rendered powerless. Again, therefore, verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, the children share in flesh and blood. In other words, like Jesus, we share flesh and blood. In other words, Jesus, like us, had flesh and blood. Let me say it that way. He came into the world like his brethren, like those who would become his brethren. He had flesh. He had blood. We share with Jesus in that. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. 
He became like us. He put on flesh and blood. That through death, he might render powerless he who hath the power of death, that is the devil, and might free, throw, free those who through death, fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. What's the point of that? The point is, is that Jesus, through Jesus, we don't have to fear death. And we don't have to go in our lives crippled by the devil. Jesus conquered death and he conquered the devil through his sufferings. And how did he ultimately do that? How did he ultimately make it so that we don't have to fear the, de the devil and death? Well, ultimately, my friends, he did that through his resurrection. The death of Jesus was very important. We couldn't be saved without it, but his resurrection was equally important. In fact, maybe even more important because through his resurrection, it was confirmed that God was pleased with his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus went into the tomb, and three days later, he came out of the tomb. Now, there have been some great people on this planet, some great people who've done some great things. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, Martin Luther King, Alexander the Great. There have been some people on this planet who've done some amazing things and been great leaders, but one thing they all have in common is when they went into the ground, when they died and went into the ground, they stayed there. They didn't come out of the tomb. That's not the case with Jesus. Jesus died just like those men died. But when Jesus went into the tomb, three days later, he came out of the tomb and he was seen all over the place. Jesus conquered death. He conquered Hades. And because he conquered the grave, we as his brethren, we as the children of God, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to look at death as a final destination. Instead, we can live our lives knowing that Jesus has the power to raise us up because he himself was raised up three days later. Jesus defeated death, and he defeated the devil. And that is such a blessing. That is such a blessing. You know, I fear that so often as Christians, we, we say we know the resurrection story so well, and it gets to the point to, to where we, it, it loses power in our lives because we hear it so much. But, but my friends, please understand, the resurrection of Jesus is the core of the gospel. Without the resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we don't have anything. We have nothing without the resurrection of Jesus. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can know that we're following the truth. Jesus is the Savior, and he has more power and more authority than the evil one, the devil, and even over death. And so through the sufferings of Jesus, through everything he went through, death was rendered powerless, and so was the evil one, the devil. And then finally, because of the sufferings of Jesus, in verses 17 through 18, we see that he was also made to become a merciful and a faithful high priest. Do you see that? A merciful and a faithful high priest. 
As a high priest, the Bible says that Jesus, verse 17, he's able to make propitiation. Propitiation. I can't believe I even said that word right. I may, I may not have, but I tried my best. He was able to make propitiation for the sins of his people. What is propitiation? Propitiation, atonement. He was able to make a sacrifice that appeased the justice of God, that satisfied the justice of God. You know, that's very different than what you find in the Old Covenant. You know, in the Old Covenant, during the time of the Law of Moses, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the most holy place, and he would have to make a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, an atonement for himself first, because he was a sinner, and then a, a sacrifice for all of the people of Israel. That's what he would have to do every year, like clockwork. Make an atonement, a sin sacrifice for himself in the sins of the people. That's different in a big sense from what Jesus does as a high priest. He says a high priest, Jesus, when he goes and makes atonement, or when he went and made atonement for our sins, he wasn't doing it for himself first. Jesus had no sins. He, he was perfect in every way. Never committed one sin in his life. He didn't make atonement for his sins. Instead, he made atonement for our sins, and he made it one time for all time. He doesn't have to do it every single year like the high priest of the Old Testament. He did it one time for all time. That's another point the Hebrew writer will make later in this book. And so he's a perfect high priest, a faithful high priest, faithful in every way. And another reason why he's a faithful high priest is because the Hebrew writer said in verse 18 He's able to come to our aid, our aid. In other words, he's able to help us. He's able to help me, and he's able to help you. And the main reason why he's able to do that is because he went through everything we're going through. The Bible says he was tempted in every single way, and yet even though he was tempted in every way, he was without sin. And so if anybody understands your struggles... If anybody understands the temptations you're going through in your life, Jesus does. As your high priest, if you're a Christian, as your high priest, Jesus knows every struggle you, you're, you're going through. He went through those struggles himself. He was tempted in every way, and yet he never succumbed or succumbed to those, to those, to those temptations. You know, when I read that, those verses, I, I see, and I, and I hope you can see, that it is not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. We're all tempted. Jesus was tempted. The sin is not in temptation. The sin is giving in to temptation. When we give in to the temptations the devil puts before us, that's the problem. Jesus was tempted just like us, but unlike us, he never gave in to the temptations. And so through his sufferings, he was made to be the perfect author of our salvation. He was able to be a faithful and merciful and, and, and great high priest. He was able to make it so that we could be adopted into the family of God. And through his sufferings, he also made it possible for us to live our lives no longer in fear of death and the devil. That's essentially what we find in chapter 2. And so in summary, 
the, the main things I want you to take away is don't drift from your great salvation if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have a great salvation. Don't drift from that. Pay close attention to the salvation found in Jesus. Continue to grow and learn the gospel of Jesus. And thank God today through prayer, that through the sufferings of God's Son, that through the sufferings of God, who for a time was made a little lower than angels, thank God that through his sufferings, so many blessings have been made available to you in your life. That's pretty much a summary of chapter 2. I, I know that there's so much more we could have said about that. I get that. Uh, but I just wanted to give you a brief overview. Next time, we'll move on to chapter 3. And we'll do that on Wednesday night. In chapter 3, the Hebrew writer will continue making his case to the superiority of Jesus or for the superiority of Jesus. Remember, he made the case that Jesus is superior to the prophets. He's superior to angels. And in chapter 3, he's going to even take this higher by saying that Jesus is more superior to, to Moses. He describes Moses as a faithful servant in the house of God, but Jesus was a son in the house of God, and the son is greater than the servant. So that's the point that's going to be made in chapter 3, and we'll, we'll look at that further. But thank you for taking the time to study with me now. Uh, continue to study your Bibles, pray, stay close to your family, stay strong. Hopefully this crisis will be over with soon, and we can be able to assemble with our local congregations again around the country. But for now, be encouraged and blessed in the Word of God.